You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. You know, like, you know, when we went... (laughs) When we went to the show in Manchester, I think we'd done one show together, and this is something I'll talk about. And like Richard, but Richard phoned me up and said, "Oh, I should, I should just save this for the podcast." I've recorded. Phoned me up. I'm recording it, so let's just roll with this. Okay, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> yeah, Richard phoned me up. I, I'm not even sure if we'd done one show together, and said. Oh, we're doing the live show over in Manchester. Yeah, you should come. Bring your husband. It'll be really fun. And then by the end of the conversation, it turned from come and watch us at the live show to come on stage at the live show in front of hundreds of paying people um, and <laughs> talk to them. <laughs> just classic. That was classic well. That was uh, Rich's way. I mean, listen, Lizzie. I was just saying before we started recording that I don't really know how to start this show. This is our first show um, since Rich passed away. But I think I'm just going to start it with that because, well, hello, I'm Tom Wally and I'm with Lizzie Banks. Um, Lizzie, it's Rich is how we know each other, isn't it? It is. And I, I don't know where I would be without Richard. I would certainly be in a completely... Yeah, my career would have taken a different path. I wouldn't have had these fantastic opportunities um you know I wouldn't have had this this opportunity to come on service course to to meet you Tom to get to know you so well to get to know this huge family um within the cycling podcast both of the people who work here and the phenomenal support of the wider family of listeners and the last couple of weeks we've really felt how strong that community is I mean I already already knew how strong that community was before but it's never been so strong as in the last few weeks when everybody has really come together to support the thousands and thousands of listeners who were were touched by Richard over so many years no it has been um it has been incredible I mean I've and I've you know if you haven't listened to our uh, celebration of Richard on the, the main episode you know do go and listen to it I think a lot of people were maybe found it a bit too painful but those who have listened to it the, the reaction's been incredible and I've I found it um very therapeutic to listen to but I think I've you know I've in that episode I think I sort of said all I really wanted to say about how Rich has you know sort of impacted my life and and brought people into it but it was you know over the last few weeks just listening to well I've actually found a lot of solace actually in there's a Facebook group dedicated to the cycling podcast that we don't run. And you know, I've, I've just dipped in and out of there to read people's tributes and hear people talking about Rich. And I, w- I would just like to thank everyone for, for all the kind things that they've been saying and just being able to dip in and out of those conversations has, has been, you know, very helpful to me. Likewise, Tom, I mean, you know, we're obviously so fortunate to have been able to to personally know Richard and to have been encouraged by him and, um, encouraged to do things that we'd probably never thought that we would do otherwise. Um, things that will and have changed the shape of our careers and lives, you know, no doubt for the better, but on a huge scale. And um, yeah, I too have been um, really touched by all of those messages, hearing about how Richard had, had changed people's lives in so many in so many different ways. And um, well, uh, like I say, it was um, 
it was Rich that brought us together. I mean, I, I don't even know when it was now. Is it, oh, it was, the, it was the world. Well, I should be able to date it. It was the World Championships, wasn't it? When because we, we met at Betty's Tea Room in Harrogate. That was our first introduction. Were you at Betty's? I don't think I met you there, Tom. No, it, I didn't. I didn't meet you there. I you met did. Richard you, there. You did because Lizzie. What happened was you met Richard there, and then I came up like maybe a day after you'd done a bit with Rich there because I distinctly remember <laughs> you trying to speaking very loudly trying to get a tea sponsorship <laughs> right so I remember that I was definitely in the room for that uh what else do I remember I can't remember uh, but yeah it was Rich it was you I, I, I must have made such a great impact it was you being Rich at base there's only three of us you. there I've got a photographic evidence of this because I think it was Paul Watson I think friend of the podcast who um I was in Betty's with Richard without you, Tom. And um, he came and asked for a photo. And I remember this so vividly because, <laughs> of course, Richard had uh, made friends with the owner of Be- or the manager of Betty's, who was a big fan of the podcast and a big listener of the podcast. And um, Richard had managed to reserve this spot in the corner of Betty's for the cycling podcast for the whole week. And bear in mind, Yorkshire 2019 World Championships. If you don't know of Betty's, it's a very famous tea room in Harrogate and it was absolutely packed queues 100 meter queues out the door every single day um of course Richard managed to reserve this spot and um get free food and drink for the whole week which was brilliant but actually my first my first meeting with Richard um was at the women's tour in 2019 and there's this brilliant bit of audio where you can hear Orla and Rose presenting me with a peddler de charme t-shirt and Richard in in the background mumbling away asking whether I'd like an extra small or a medium t-shirt and (laughs) that was my very first introduction to Richard and later that afternoon I was I was interviewed by him and um yeah fondly actually I remember him saying in the podcast that I was one of the revelations of the women's tour which I'll hold on to that piece of audio very closely um and but he, he must have escaped my memory you know somehow after then because because it was it was such a short interaction and I didn't know the journalists at that time I was eager to speak to people but I didn't know who anybody was um and about a month later my press officer got in touch and said oh Richard Moore from the cycling podcast has got a proposition for you sent sent uh, me his number and I saved him in my phone as Richard Moore Cycling Podcast because at this point the magnanimity of who both Richard was and the cycling podcast were just hadn't registered with me and Richard phoned up and he asked me to do an audio diary for the Giro d'Italia which I think was released as a friend of the podcast episode in 2019 and it was obviously good luck uh, because I managed to win a stage that year um and Richard was, as he always was, so enthusiastic about it. Um, kept telling me how brilliant it was, which was lovely. And then another month or so later, completely out of the blue, I think I got a text from Richard saying, do you like um, tech and are you interested in how bikes work? <laughs> Things like that. Um, to which I replied, yes, but what on earth have you got up your sleeve now? Um, then invited me to Betty's for this chat, which I'm sure you weren't there, Tom. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to dig the photo out. I was I, I was absolutely there. I remember because the weather was grotty, and I bought. The weather was grotty, fact, but that doesn't that doesn't fact, narrow it down to a day because it was grotty every day. <laughs> I've got I've got one of those uh, big bubble hats from the World Championships, and I bought it on that day. So that every time I wear that hat, I'm reminded that I was there. 
Well, clearly you didn't make an impression the first time either. But at that point, um, that was where Richard proposed this idea to me of um, becoming a presenter on a podcast, which just seemed so wild. I mean, I'd I'd done a couple of interviews after races and then I'd done this Giro diary, but then presenting, being essentially a journalist, was not something that I was confident of doing and confident in knowing how to do. But the faith instilled in me through Richard and through you through Richard, Tom, was enough to just make me believe that I could do something that I've not only never done before, never thought I would do. Um, but yeah, it's just, it was so characteristic of Richard well, to well, just that, have complete faith that's in, it. And I think, in somebody. I think that's how the, I mean, that we've, we all know how the podcast started, you know, it was just a case of, well, listen, here's the idea, just, just do it, you know just just you know just have a just have a go because you know we we you sometimes think of rich as this kind of experienced you know godfather of podcasting but he was still you know relatively new to it and you know i was here to answer questions from rich all the time you know about well how do you do this and how do you do that but um it was i mean that that um audio diary was basically like i don't think you knew it but it turned out to be an audition tape basically an audition. You know. that's what it was you know and I, I mean it wasn't set up like that but afterwards i mean i remember rich saying you know what do you think about lizzie and I said, yeah definitely um and that's why i came up to meet you in harrogate when you can't remember <laughs> i was there <laughs> but what about you tom how did you go from being a producer to being a presenter on service course well i mean again sort of comes from I th- I th- I, this is the story I tell myself. Um, I don't really know. Um, but obviously, I've done a bit of presenting anyway because I've been involved in radio for most of my life. So if you do that, you do end up on the microphone um, quite a bit. But I think, you know, I've done a few bits and pieces for YouTube. But it was, it was one of those ones where, you know, Rich is... Um, I, I'd like to say it was Rich. Rich has got this idea and he's just looking for people to to sort of fill that gap and he obviously saw the, the the great thing about rich was that he saw potential and he saw qualities in people and not just one type of person because you know you and I are very different you know Lionel and Daniel are very different Rose and Orla are very different people but he he could see the strengths of these different people um uh, and when, when assembling teams and that's you know that's what he's done repeatedly is assemble these teams so you know he just said I want to do a a, a cycling tech show and we sort of do tech in quote marks because you know we're, we're much much more <laughs> very, than very that or much tech. less than I mean, that <laughs> you know? yeah we we very rarely talk about tech just <laughs> yeah. whatever but, uh, takes the fancy um, but, but but it's amazing isn't it and and every single episode we would always have always have Richard within within 24 hours telling us how wonderful it was um what he liked about it you know just how brilliant it was just that constant enthusiasm um just yeah that constant belief that even when you maybe didn't feel like you'd done it justice and and you know you always wanted to do justice to Richard you always wanted to make Richard proud and you know there were always segments or interviews or you know little bits that you just didn't feel had gone very well or sometimes you do an interview and you just you know you just can't really get what you want out of somebody or somebody sometimes you just can't nail down the interview you want because people are hard to get and you feel unsatisfied and you you just so desperately wanted to to please Richard and to make him happy and um and to make him proud of what you'd done but he was 
his unwavering support for what we did always made us believe that you know next time next time it would be even better it was brilliant this time and it would be even better next time and you know the way the way he championed women as well and and it's not because because we were women he just he didn't see gender he saw talent and he just saw talent no matter who you were and then he would find find a way he would create a way to make an opportunity for you like with Kate Wagner at the Tour de France and yeah. like with me and so so many other people and um yeah it was brilliant you know Richard became such a mentor to me I would just pick up the phone about anything to him and give him a ring and he'd always he'd always know and he would always, if I needed to, uh, you know, I needed to get in contact with somebody or, you know, I was having a bit of a meltdown in my life, which has happened quite a lot over the past couple of years, you know, he would always know know what to do. And um, it was nice because I felt like I could give back as well, you know, as he was so enthused about the world of women's cycling and learning so much more about it and really pushing for increased coverage and um doing such amazing things with the podcast as well you know I felt like I could give back and kind of provide him with more knowledge of the riders access to the riders sometimes insight to you know what rider might suit the you know what might rider might suit what feature and um it was just such a beautiful relationship and I think that everybody who did and even didn't know Richard personally felt like they had that beautiful relationship and that was that was Richard's magic yeah, and I think one of the things is that I've really, um, I've, well, not, I can't say I've enjoyed, but one of the things I've found comforting um, since Richard passed away is that a lot of us have been sharing our memories of, of what Rich meant to us. And we all had our own sort of relationship with Rich. He was a different thing to different people. But there are a lot of things that, um, there are a lot of common threads to those relationships. And, and most common is that, he saw something in me and he, he brought me in and he gave me opportunities. And I think, you know, yourself, me, Kate, Orla, Rose, we can all speak to that. And in hearing hearing that he, those qualities, Rich had those qualities for all of us independently, just shows that he was really, really authentic. And that's one of the things that I, I take away from it, you know, my, my relationship with Rich, the qualities I saw in him were genuine and they were authentic and they were seen by other people. Well, like I say, you know, if you haven't already listened to it, please go and listen to the episode, our friend uh, Richard Moore, um, where you hear many more stories and a lot more tributes. Um, one uh, person who wasn't able to contribute to that is another person that I have, and this is a common thread, uh, there's there's lots and lots of people in my life, like you, Lizzie, who I've met because of Rich. And one of those people is Ian Boswell, you know, former World Tour rider, now um, excelling in the gravel, working for Wahoo, and a podcaster. So Rich basically made all of his podcasters. <laughs> where, did he, where did he get that from? <laughs> where did he get that? You know, and, and, you know, again, you know, our, my relationship with Boz goes back to... Um, a very early days of the cycling podcast when Rich did this episode called The Young Americans where he went out to Nice and he spent time with uh, Larry Warbass, Joe Dombrowski and Ian Boswell and it was one of the sort of early sort of big friends of the podcast things I worked on with Rich and it was fantastic and you know since then mm, you know I've kind was. of I've kind of really sort of um it 
I've, I've felt closer to those riders. I've under, I've known them better, and I've got to to know um, Ian over the years. So um, yeah, Ian wanted to pay his own tribute, so I um, I asked him to come on service course. So here's Ian Boswell. Hey everyone at the Cycling Podcast and Cycling Podcast listeners, Ian Boswell here. As many of you know, Richard Moore passed away a few days ago. I learned about the news and at first was completely shocked and just taken back by what what an amazing man he was, what a connection I had with him personally and the connection that we all I think globally within the cycling community had with with Richard. I first had the chance to meet him probably in 2013 when I had first joined Team Sky and he came to a team camp and we instantly hit it off and throughout my entire time racing in the world tour, we spoke regularly. I was oftentimes a guest on the cycling podcast and uh, he was really a, a pioneer in documenting cycling in an audio form that was both fun and insightful and I think still to this day it is the most informative way of following the sport that that I can find and that I know of and that's that's the cycling podcast and that's something that Richard Moore built and created and shared and you know I was fortunate enough to spend countless uh countless hours with Richard whether it was on on podcasts you know going out to dinner the few times that he came down to Nice to do the episode about the young Americans and then later on I guess the older Americans with myself, uh, Larry Warbass and Joe Dombrowski. And he was someone that I've stayed in touch with fairly closely since retiring from the sport, um, whether it be a guest on the podcast or just checking in. Um, you know, he was a, a man who went above and beyond always. Last year during the women's Perry roubaix uh, a close neighbor of mine and a fan and friend of the podcast asked if there was somehow I could try to get one of the posters from the women's Perry Roubaix and who else did I think about reaching out to but Richard Moore so I quickly sent him a text message he was at the race and a few weeks later a poster from the women's Perry Roubaix was sent to my house and is now hanging framed in my neighbor's house down the road and it was just something that he did and I'm sure he did things like this oftentimes for other people without even questioning it without even asking for anything in return just a genuinely big heart and and loving man and i think going forward it hasn't fully sunk in yet the impact and the connection that we all have with richard i was on a bike ride yesterday and there there wasn't a new episode available of the cycling podcast and i realized that i've listened to every single episode of the cycling podcast for probably the last 5 or 6 years it's something that I really look forward to, I, especially during the Grand Tours when there's a daily episode. You know, It tends to kind of correlate during the spring and summertime here in New England, so I'm out riding more often. And, and every day when I head out on my bike, I put my headphones in and I just hope that there is a new episode of the Cycling Podcast to accompany me on my ride. And I think that's what is going to be the hardest for so many of us to accept and to realize is that Richard wasn't just a friend. He wasn't just a journalist. He was someone that accompanied us through everyday life. And the amount of times I, this may sound funny, fell asleep to to Richard Lionel and 
Daniel's voice listening to the cycling podcast while taking an afternoon nap was countless. And I think his reach and what the podcast has become and the, the voice and the characters and the ability for us to know them as journalists, but as people has become such an integral part of so many of our lives. And I don't know what the plan is for the podcast going forward. I know it'll never be the same without, without Richard. And yeah, it's just, it's just hard to think about how Richard has come into so many people's lives, whether he knows them or not, that listen to him regularly, that, that know his perspectives, his feelings. And he shared so much with us and it's, uh, it's going to be hard to continue on, uh, with the cycling podcast, listening to it as a fan and as a friend without Richard there. But, um, you know, he has brought so much to, to the sport, to the world of cycling, to his friends, to his family. And, uh, it's, it's sad to think. And I just, yeah, I just don't know when I will next be able to put in the cycling podcast and go out for a ride and, and not think of, of Richard and, Maybe it's time to go back to episode one and start all over again and, and listen to the journey that he has put together for, for all of us cycling fans. I want to wish his family and his son uh, well wishes. I, it's got to be completely um, mind-numbing for them what has happened, and I, as a recent father, can't really fathom um, what has happened and how tragic it was and how unexpected. And If there's anything I can do to help please let me know. Um, you know, I try to live my life without many regrets, but one of the regrets that I have since realized was uh, not ever going on a grand tour with, with Richard. He's invited me a couple times now in the last couple of years to go go to the Vuelta and uh, tag along with the Cycling Podcast and, and follow the Vuelta as a co-host and I wasn't able to do it the last two years, and it's um, one of the few things in my life that I regret not doing while I had the chance. We always think there's another race, another year to do something like that, and it's a solid reminder that uh, we shouldn't say no to opportunities that present themselves. So I love you, Richard, and uh, thank you for everything you have done. You will be gravely missed, and um, yeah, I, I love you, buddy. Thanks so much for everything, and um, yeah, we will speak soon. Please. That is Seb PK interrupting to remind me to tell you that this episode of Service Course is sponsored by Harry's. Now, there's a few things in life that I won't tolerate discrimination of any kind, bad coffee, and bad pizza. Now, you can add to that list bad shaves. Because I realise for much of my life, I've been having poor quality shaves. And that's all changed since I started subscribing to Harry's. Now, Harry's are way more than a super shop razor company. They are here to revamp your whole grooming routine. From close shaves and flake-free hair, all the way to clear, healthy skin, Harry's helps guys feel good. Now I'm here to tell you how you can get a free travel size shower gel with your Harry's trial set. With that trial set you get an expertly engineered weighted handle, one five blade cartridge crafted by artisans in Harry's German factory complete with precision trimmer. You get a handy foaming shave gel, a travel blade cover 
and that free shower gel. And like I say, I've been using Harry's for the past few months. I love receiving my Harry's goodies. There's something about that weighted handle and the way it's presented in the box that makes you feel that this shave is special. And that's something I haven't felt before. So if you want to take up the offer of the free shower gel with your Harry's trial set, all you'll need to do is cover the £3.95 for delivery. You just head to harrys.com slash cycling to have your set delivered and start a shave plan. And your freebie will be added at the checkout. That's harrys.com slash cycling. Thank you to Ian uh, for those words. Uh, Lizzie, we're going to get back together at the end of this episode to talk a little bit about Roubaix, because obviously Roubaix is a feast of interesting and novel cycling tech. But before we get there, um, we're just going to spend about 45 minutes to an hour in the company of Dan Craven. Now, I don't know if you know Dan, better known as Dan from Nam. Um, originally from Namibia and he's ridden for Namibia in the Olympic Games. I first encountered him when he was riding for Europe Car when he'd just come off the Vuelta um, riding at World Tour level. Um, He's now got his own bike brand but not like many pros. It's not um, a big you know badged up carbon frame. This is proper nitty-gritty getting down and making bikes by hand out of steel. Um, so I spent a bit of time with Dan. In Namibia. In Namibia, yeah, exactly. Uh, so here he is. This is going to be a funny interview for me because we're going to go um, around the houses because, I mean, there is so much to talk to you about. <laughs> and there's, and there's, there's something very particular that I want to talk to you about, but I want to get to there. Um, yes. But obviously, one of the things I want to start with, obviously, you know, you're talking about, you know, it being difficult to get selection these days for, for mm. you know, to race for Namibia, to race in, in, in the, the Commonwealth Games. Your kind of career is um, sort of sat alongside a big development in African cycling. So, I mean, have, has it just noticeably got harder in the in the races that you're doing, and you know, in terms of you know being that number one rider, in terms of getting selected, the competition's just got better, right? Completely. I mean, um, so many people now are suddenly aware of the Eritrean cyclists, for an example. I. I'm pretty sure if I went back on my Twitter several years, I'm, I recall myself once upon a time tweeting something and saying like, world, watch out, they coming. And um, just being on the scene in Africa and having seen how it's developed over the years. I mean, my first All Africa Games were 2003 in Nigeria. And my all, first... African champs, I think was 2006. And I've been going very consistently to African games, African champs, obviously Namibian events. And the level is just, it's a different world to what it had been back then. And it's absolutely amazing how it's all changed. It's amazing. And the Namibian scene, oh, I mean, night and day from when I started completely. Well, I mean, you should you should definitely take some credit for that. But I mean, I'm going back to those sort of early days, and I don't want to sort of, you know, there's a kind of, 
have to be sort of sensitive about how you do this because you kind of you can kind of look at African cycling and, and and look at all the differences and you know the maybe the poor quality of the equipment and stuff like that and it can it can come across as as, as patronising but I do want to go back then and you know the other riders in those races you know what was their support like what was their equipment like I mean it must have been and and compared to now mm. I mean as an example I did a race in Rwanda in 2010 and I remember standing on the start line and looking next to me and the guy next to me had a tire that had a slash in it that would have been 10 centimeters long and he had stitched it with whatever it was it wasn't nylon it was some cotton or something and I'm on the start line and I'm looking at this tire that has been hand stitched to be able to reuse this tire. You know, clearly I didn't see the guy the moment the race started, he was out the back because you can imagine the guy who's got that kind of tire, you can imagine what the rest of his bike looks like and you can imagine what his training and his home situation is like. And has he even had breakfast? Uh, I mean, some of the stuff we've seen. I mean, in Namibia, it uh, was a young cyclist many years ago who we were trying to help out. And at one point, my mother was also helping him out. And we sort of realized that he wasn't washing his cycling bottles. And you know how gunky a cycling bottle could get. And we're like, wait a second, dude, you're not washing your cycling bottles. You need to look after your hygiene. And we didn't even realize that this man didn't have running water in his home or in his vicinity. Like he would, how how are you going to wash your cycling bottles if you don't have running water? And so you you come with this sort of European mindset of, yeah, you wash your bottles, you put them in the dishwasher. And it's like, never mind a dishwasher, just running water in the home. Discovering like, oh, the person got dropped after the first attack in the race. But did that person actually have breakfast? Mm. You know, he's a, there's a whole different set of questions you need to ask in many occasions. And then it's like, well, then what happens if that person actually has breakfast every day? Like how much, like, because they're already in the race without without breakfast. What happens? And, you know, that's that's not... The majority of the people in the race but that is definitely a subset that exists there that doesn't exist in many other parts of the world and it's it's not an easy fix but the fact that it exists shows that there's this appetite for the sport and that i believe is very exciting and very positive because you know if the appetite is there well, you know, then you can do something about it. Well, let's get back to sort of Namibia. I mean, you know, it is Eritrea and to some extent Rwanda and these places that sort of get in the headlines, but people, we associate you most with Namibia. And I, I haven't got the kind of, I haven't got an idea of what, what Namibia is like as a as a country. So so take me back to Namibia when you're sort of growing up. What What sort of place is it and what gets you into cycling? Okay, so just a little bit on Namibia. Namibia is six and a half times bigger than England. I think it's three and a half times bigger than the UK in terms of surface area. Uh, it's 
is it is it that way on, is it that way on a map because obviously maps often make africa look a hell of a lot smaller that's why we sort of kind of lose perspective on a, on a regular map don't we you know i mean the uk is sort of a hard one to compare because it's oddly shaped um i i believe spain is a bit more square so it might be easier yeah, yeah, yeah. i believe namibia is one and a half times bigger than spain um, and on the map, it might not look that, but if you go and look at the numbers, but now here's the surprising thing. Our population is the same as greater Birmingham. Wow. Okay. So it's sparsely populated then. So it's the second most sparsely populated country in the world after Mongolia. We oh, have wow. 2.5 million people in the space six times the size of the of England. Um, so, yeah, we've got a lot of space, and that means we've got a lot of amazing wilderness and wildlife and animals. So if you want to come on safari, Namibia is, like, really high up there on the places you should go to and is, is well known for that. But in terms of the things that our population, our people do, we're not so well known for that. <laughs> and so... With anything like cycling is, you know, it's not soccer, it's not rugby, it's it's a smaller sport. It's, you know, in the population numbers like that, and if you take the income of your average Namibian into consideration and what bicycles cost these days, it sort of becomes a smaller and smaller and smaller little subsection. But again, cycling is the new golf <laughs> and it's just absolutely in skyrocketing i mean that's interesting obviously obviously there's a there's a practical side to that you know to, to connecting people but also there's the sort of sports side but how does how did cycling reach you then as as a kid growing up there because it would seem like a world away from what you're living right i, I mean keeping in mind that until recently uh, i was the only Nam- elite namibian athlete who doesn't come from the capital Right now, the guy who went to Tokyo for mountain biking, the male, he comes from even more the middle of nowhere than I come from. But he got into it because there was a cycling event local to him. And by local to him, I mean 150 kilometers away. (laughs) And so, yes, everyone, everyone is almost Vintuk, which is the capital based. I'm for many, many years was the only guy who wasn't from Vintuk. And basically when I was five years old, I watched a triathlon, that memory stuck in the back of my brain. And when I was about 16, 15, I was at a soccer tournament and I saw an advert for a triathlon and just all of these emotions came flooding back. And I was like, I need to do that. And Slowly, you know, got duathlon, triathlon, discovered that swimming and running meant nothing to me and cycling <laughs> was just freedom and beauty and this thing that could take me places and amazing. But obviously, but then taking the leap from, you know, just having a having a bike in the in the backwoods of, of Namibia to actually, you know, uh, racing on the road was that something that, that sort of developed when you were at university then or studying? Oh, yeah I I discovered triathlon when I was still in high school 
And to me, the closest high school was in the next town. The next town is 140 kilometers away. So I was in boarding school, but Namibian boarding school, which is not like British posh boarding school. It's like necessity boarding school where where some farmers' kids have been, you know, from from the age of six years old, they've been in boarding school 200, 300 kilometers away because it's the only way they can go to school. And um, it was a, a German boarding school, so <laughs> I had to learn German very quickly. And the reason for that is because Namibia used to be a German colony. There's still a very strong German culture in Namibia. And I was obviously playing soccer because I'm with all of the Germans and discovered the triathlon, got into it, was like, this is what I'm doing. The town I was in obviously didn't have a swimming pool. So on weekends, I would go home and we'd have this water reservoir slash swimming pool slash fish in it and green and muck at the bottom. That was 16 meters long and I would train in that. And I would think that I was taking the super seriously. Uh, and there was one other guy in town who rode a bike and he like had a belly and he was like an insurance guy. And like I learned everything I could from him, which wasn't much, but at the time was everything. And then to run, I would find a few buddies I could run with. So that was like, I thought I was taking it so seriously, but in hindsight, it was like, okay, maybe not. But so many of my peers had never even heard of the sport called triathlon. They had no idea what I was doing, couldn't really understand it. So it was only when I left school and I went to university in South Africa and I went to Stellenbosch, which is basically where the Cape Epic always goes through. It's like a massive hub of mountain biking. Uh, but back then it was a massive hub of triathlon. I mean, Tim Don, British triathlete, used spends lots of time or used to spend lots of time there and I was like yay I'm going to university in this triathlon mecca and I joined the cycling club and went on interesting roads for the first time in my life on a road bike and I was like wait a second this is what cycling can be like and I never did another never mind triathlon swimming session running session I was just head over heels in love with it and you know I mean Stellenbosch cycling is good mountain biking is amazing road cycling is it's decent but compared to what you get in Europe I mean it's so when I came overseas I was just absolutely blown away 10 times over by what one can do with road cycling it's interesting you still talk about you know like um road cycling what it exposes you to you know the, the beauty the things that you see obviously when you start racing it's literally from town to town race to race unit but did you did you still you sound like you still hung on to that kind of I want to experience the place I'm in otherwise there's no point to this sport yes I mean I am if you look on pro cycling stats there's a statistic there's a very interesting statistic yeah I want to talk about that yeah (laughs) um most countries raced in so that's official UCI races uh, I am second on the list of most countries raced in. I think I'm like 44 countries that I've done official UCI races in. And I mean, that wasn't on purpose. That was just how my career developed. Like I was, you know, had I been good enough to be in a world to a team, I would have just been racing in Belgium and France and Italy and Spain. That's it. But I was 
I was just always hungry for more and ended up, call it injury issues, call it wanting to explore various different reasons. I, I sort of bounced around a bit on a few interesting teams that would mm. go to interesting places and do interesting races. And that really, I just love it. I mean, so interesting going to somewhere. I mean, you know, with everything that's happening in Ukraine right now, um, in 2014, uh, there had just been, you know, the a few things that happened in Ukraine in 2014. And we went to Ukraine in the middle of the year in 2014 to do a race. And one of my teammates at the time, his parents didn't let him go because it was like, oh, there's war going on there. And we got there and it was like, wait, no, we're in Kiev, we're in the town square where like the massive protests happened and we were there and it was like yeah it's not it's not so bad I'm, I'm not saying what's happening now is not so bad I'm just saying at the time we were there in 2014 and it's just so eye-opening sort of the opportunities that traveling would give us to see things aren't always what you expect them to be and sometimes they're a lot worse than you expect them to be um, like I'm guessing now, in my experience, it, it, everything I'm hearing, I expect it to actually be worse than what mm. we're hearing. Whereas back then, you know, it ended up everything was 10 times better than what we expected for that time period. And just all of this traveling just sort of makes you realize how little you know and how little people around you know and how interesting things are if you go to places i mean it's just thinking of this another time i was in cameroon also happens to be 2014 and one of my best meals i ever had was in cameroon in a super busy traffic circle in the middle of a city there was this little hut set up on the side of this traffic circle and this guy was selling food and he was selling omelets and salads. And I saw someone have something. I was like, I'm having, I want that. And once again, my teammates who were with me, they were like, no, 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 it's okay. We're going to eat at the hotel. We're not going to order from this place. And the guy started, you know, cracking eggs and whipping up this omelet and he made a tomato avocado mayonnaise salad that was just mind-blowing and the most delicious and freshly made i mean in places like cameroon and rwanda avocados grow year-round if an avocado falls off a tree people will like walk over it and step on it because it's like there's so much of it it's so abundant it's not special like it is here and my goodness, I, I'm my mouth is literally watering just thinking of that meal again. And all of my teammates see my food coming out. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. And they run pounded in and had the same thing. And it was just who, like, you know, I start describing the scene, this super traffic, busy, you know, Africa somewhere, city. And then you don't expect the meal you have there to just be amazing. And it's like, the preconceived ideas that one tends to have 
you know, everyone, everyone wants good food. No one wants to eat nonsense. Like it's, we have more in common than there are differences. If you just want to open yourself up to it. Who has raced in more countries than you? Who is it? Who's above you? <laughs> Can't think um, who it is. I mean, I know him, obviously. Uh, and uh, oof. his name his name escapes me right now. But uh, um, funnily enough, actually, this is funny. Uh, I was talking to him not long ago because his grandmother's sister is actually buried in Namibia. Oh, He's okay. a Romanian German, but his grandmother's sister is buried in Namibia. So we were discussing uh, her grave, and I actually sent a friend there to go and take a photo of it. Wow! Um, and so we've we spent many years racing together. And oh, it's um, Patrick Tybor, isn't it, Patrick? Patrick Tybor. That's that's who I've got on the list. There's forty six nations. And then there's Lars Priya, who's below oh, you. Yeah, Lars, Lars Priya. Who's Patrick Tybor? He's new to the list. <laughs> Shall we find out about Patrick together? <laughs> I'm um, number three then. So you, no, you're number two. You're ahead of Lars on this list that I've got. So you're still oh. number two. So he is uh, he's Slovakian. Um, been on the same continental team for, looks like, his entire career since 2006. And he's still active. So... Which team is that? Is that Praha? It's a, a uh, Dukla Banska Bistrika, they call yeah. it at the moment. Yeah. It used to be called Dukla, Dukla Praha. Dukla ah, Praha. yes. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Then I... Then I... Oh, I did not realize he, he jumped ahead of us. Yeah, he's on he's on 46. We've got you down as 45 on this list. Lars at 44 and, and Patrick at 46. So. I believe I raced Patrick in this Cameroon race that I'm just talking about. Ah, really? Okay. If not, then he definitely raced Cameroon at, at a different time, but... I mean, I mean, love to be interested to get you guys in a room just to just to kind of compare notes. But I mean, well, I'm talking of all these exotic locations. I actually first encountered you, uh, Alexandra Palace. Um, and you, I mean, you mentioned earlier on that you know you weren't. You said you something along the lines of you weren't good enough for World Tour. But at the time, you were a World Tour pro because you were riding for <laughs> Europe Car had been promoted then, hadn't they? So you were yes. a World Tour pro, and you came to race the Rafa Supercross at Ali mm. Pali. And I remember, you know, shooting you with foam, you know, foam guns and that sort of stuff. And I, I was pretty surprised, actually. I thought, here's, you know, again, another sort of another example of a sort of a, a World Tour Pro sort of breaking the mould, really. You know, maybe you, maybe you were ahead of the game with this sort of alternative race calendar back then. <laughs> oh, man, I am so jealous of Lachlan and call it the opportunity that he's shall I say, created for himself. With oh, he has story. created it. And I mean, no, I mean, you go back to those first thereabouts films. He, he He's created this himself, yes. no doubt. Oh, man, but such a dream like that would have... Oh, man, I wish I could have been a bit more like that. But uh, so basically, I had, I had just raced the Vuelta and it was off-season. Um, actually, we'd just gone to China after the Vuelta, got back, it was off-season. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, lived in London. Um, so I spent a lot of time there and you're wrong. I did not come to race the Rafa Supercross. I came to race. You, the, that's right. You raced the fun race where you were drinking I, I know, tequila. I came to race the fun race and then I got there and they told me, 
the one team is missing a rider for the Supercross, we're going to use you. And I was that's like, right, that's you right. are? <laughs> I have no idea how to race cyclocross. So they gave me someone that gave me. They found Bruce Dalton, and he showed me how to hop over the barriers for <laughs> 10 minutes. That's the training I had. And then off we went with the Supercross, and it was so much fun. I just had an absolute blast, but I was there for the, the foam cannon for that race. You already had a few tequilas in you before that well, race, I remember. It was a tequila shortcut in the yes. race. So I did I did the serious race. I had fun. It was amazing. I wish I could do more. But the reason I was there was for the fun race. And the fun race, no one cared who finished first. No one cared about anything except the fact that the biggest foam cannon in Europe (laughs) was at the start line and that there was a tequila shortcut. And I, which means you can do a shortcut. You don't have to do the full lap, but you have to take a shot of tequila. And let's just say the tequila shortcut ran out of tequila and I might have been part of the reason for that because I did <laughs> I did lots of laps and I took tequila every single time. And at some point, someone whipped out a hip flask that had whiskey in it. So, I, I mean, I started mixing my drinks mid-race. And this foam cannon, I mean, the biggest foam cannon in Europe, I think it had just come from Mallorca because the summer had just ended and for winter, yes, they were going to use it in the UK, something like that. But it just arrived from New York. I remember that. And there was foam about, I mean, at least four feet of foam, you know, call it a meter 30, a meter 40 deep of foam. And one of the laps, the guy who was in front of me, slipped because obviously foam is slippery and grass with foam is very slippery slipped and fell in the foam and completely disappeared from sight and the foam closed up over him and had I not seen him crash in front of me I would not have believed that there was someone on the ground (laughs) and basically I was just laughing for however long the race I mean it was 30 minutes or something like that and I was just constantly laughing i surprised i could even pedal my bike i've got a photo of you somewhere alongside my mate who's dressed like a panda uh, yes. in that race yes. <laughs> so it was a good it was a good old day out but I mean, it's funny i mean going back to sort of i mean i do associate you with um with london obviously i was, I was living there at the time mm-hmm. but um so obviously I, mean, I want to talk to you about your your latest venture and your you know you're going into frame building but what it's wrong to say you're going into frame building because i didn't realize that sort of your interest in frame building starts around 2008 and back at the time when you were racing with with Rafa so do you want to talk a bit well Rafa Condor do you want to talk a bit a little bit about how you sort of got into that back in the day well as you say it was was actually 2009 2010 um racing for Rafa Condor and Condor you know they make race carbon beautiful bikes but they also have a large array of steel bikes and a very long history and amazing people who've raced their bikes over the years. And at some point in 2010, I 
can't quite remember why, but I asked them, don't you guys have a steel bike that is raceable? Because they look pretty nice to me. And they said, no, we don't really. But, you know, we might be thinking about it. And a few months later, I got a message from the crew at Condor and they said, oh, we just got one in, a prototype. Would you like to try it? And I was like, of course, would I like to try it? Of course, I'd like to try it. So they sent it up to me when I was I was living in Manchester at the time and this bike arrives and it was just stunning. And one of my biggest memories of this bike, which was nicknamed the Steely Dan for obvious reasons, was that I would, I would, I raced on it many times and quite often in races, people would come up to me and be like, Dan, where's your steel bike? And I'd be like, I'm on it. And they'd be like, no, that's a carbon bike. And I was like, no, this is, this is the steel bike. And I think so many people have this misconception of what a steel bike means. It's like everyone knows what Eddie Merckx's steel bikes look like. And to many people, I think that's still what a steel bike is. Whereas a modern steel bike, like the technology, exactly, in the background. <laughs> like the technology in steel, it's not like it stood still since the 1960s. It's kept growing and steel tubing has been able to change and develop and get stronger and lighter and all of these amazing things. I mean, if you think about the first carbon fiber bikes we had in the early 2000s, late 1990s to now, I mean, they were miles apart. And that's something very similar has happened with, with steel. So me in 2010 riding this steel bike that some people thought was a carbon bike, I was, I was kind of so amused that people didn't realize that back then. And I raced didn't race a full Tour of Britain on it, but I raced several stages in the Tour of Britain on my steel bike, you know, against World Tour teams. And I actually raced the Tropicala Misabongo, which is was Africa's biggest stage race at the time, the only race in Africa where Tour de France World Tour teams could race. And that's actually where I made the connection to Europe car and where they met me and became interested in me. And I won the King of the Mountains jersey in 2010, I can't even remember, 2010-11, on a steel condor. And the King of the Mountains jersey, you know, where everyone is like, oh, steel weighs a ton. And, and so from there it developed and Rafa did a this whole continental series of gentlemen's rides. And with that, they had... They had five builders build steel bikes for them that were then all logoed up and with the builders' names, obviously, like Independent Fabrication, Indie Fab. And and one of the builders was Ira Ryan. And for some reason, his specific bike just sort of caught my attention the most. And I was like, oh, this thing is beautiful. And reading all of the blurbs, and I discovered that Ira had been building bikes for only either three or five years at the time. And I was like, wait a second, you are good enough that you're building bikes for a rougher show bike, which in my mind was like very high praise, but you've only been doing this for five years. You're not like Colnago who's been building bikes for 60 years or Condor who's been building bikes for 60 years. You've been building bikes for five years and you're not an engineer. You're not, 
but this bicycle is beautiful. I mean, it took my breath away. And so like, who do you think you are? Like you're just some dude. And I mean, clearly not, you're just some dude. You're, I've met him. He's amazing. He builds amazing bikes and the bikes are now breadwinners and like breadwinners are beautiful and amazing bikes. But I was kind of like, if you can do that, then can I do that? And that sort of got this idea rolling in my head. And I was like, wait a second, if I can do that, then who else can do that? Can we do this in Namibia? So it was way back in 2010 that this sort of crazy little seed got planted in the back of my brain. And in 2012, I then went to the Bicycle Academy in Froome in the UK, not far from Bath. And I took a five-day frame building course. And, you know, I walked in there. I'd never used a, a brazing torch, you know, oxyacetylene, big flame, um, brazing rods. I, I didn't even know what oxyacetylene meant. And, you know, I mean, it just oxygen and acetylene, the two gases that burn that, you know, make a flame up to 900 degrees to melt the brass and all of these things that like I knew nothing about. And five days later, I'd learned this and I'd built a frame. I was like, wait, I can build a frame in five days. Like once again, if I can do this, then other people can definitely also do this. And and then my cycling career continued. And obviously this all got put on the back burner. But that's sort of where this whole idea first started off. And it's taken a very long time to go from, from there building my first two bikes actually in 2012 and building another bike in 2016, always in different workshops, always with different masters. Where are those bikes, by the way? Do they still exist? Uh, so the the first one I built was basically we built buffalo bikes that were then built up and we're going to go to somewhere in Africa um, to a development program and I obviously got involved with that and they went to Namibia <laughs> so those those bikes are in Namibia I still see them every now and then which is obviously wow, amazing that's a lovely that must be lovely to see that yes. bike still being used that's well I don't I, mean. I don't know which ones I see because I don't know if I actually see mine because there, okay. there was about a hundred of them right well there's probably more actually that were all sent out and a lot of them have been converted into e-bikes um, because there's this amazing project uh, in Namibia that does all of that. And my second bike was a 29er mountain bike that I built that I immediately then took off to Namibia and raced our version of, I'm going to call it Unbound, the big gravel event in the US, um, which is in Namibia, it is the Desert Dash. It is now 394 four kilometers long uh 24-hour cutoff time goes from the capital to the coast but at the time it was only 340 kilometers and you know i built my own bike and two weeks later i went and won the desert dash on this bike that i'd built and it was like well these bikes can move you know they they're not bad that bike still belongs to a friend of mine. Well, still belongs to me, but a friend of mine is riding it. <laughs> um, so I see it every time I'm back in, in the capital. And then the third bike I built, which was 
the first gravel bike I built was was passed on to a friend and he's since then passed it on to another friend and I'm in Girona at the moment and it is in Girona so I still see that <laughs> quite often uh, which I still laugh every time and the second bike was built with Robin Mather who is an amazing frame builder um, amazing human being uh, prize winning etc etc um and then the third one was built with Matthew Souter of Saffron Frameworks in London. Another really good friend. Beautiful amazing bikes. Frame yeah, builder. really beautiful. Um, so Robin, unfortunately, doesn't really build anymore, but Matthew does in his bikes. I mean, I own a Saffron. My wife owns a Saffron. They are just like, yeah, you want a Saffron, basically. The paint, the paint, <laughs> the, uh, the paint jobs on the Saffrons are stunning, aren't they? I mean... And also being in his workshop, seeing how he works, how particular he is. Yeah. You want to set from. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, Robin actually came out to Namibia on two occasions for a month each to help with teaching and developing and more learning in Namibia. So like, the great thing about the seed being planted way back in 2010 is that I basically had had all of this time to meet people and to slowly but surely, you know, while I'm still in the cycling racing industry, you know, it's quite easy to sort of branch into the cycling frame building community and sort of meet people and make connections and find out things and uh, so when in 2017, the, the injuries finally made racing not, not viable anymore, shall I say, the contract's not coming in anymore, then it was like, okay, well, maybe it's time now to, to really do something with this idea of mine. And it's just grown and grown and grown. And we are now in... Girona in Spain, where we've lived, basically to pack up to move back to Namibia full time because we want to do things properly and have a go at this. So, so what is it? So it's so. Um, so, well, let's tell, tell us about the the, the brand and, and the bikes that you're going to be making. I mean, are you, is your focus on you know creating race bikes for for the next generation, or is it literally you know creating bikes that are practical and that can be built? simply and uh, you know they're sturdy and they're usable and you know in, in terms of and making a difference in that sort of sense that, that the way that sort of a charity like Quebec, for instance has, has made a difference so what you've just said is the 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 first reaction we very often get and i completely understand where that comes from and i often think that way myself but that's actually the exact thing we're trying to avoid because so many people they think of I say so many people almost everyone like we globally have been sort of a lull into this world where you think of Africa you think of poverty yeah. you think of no skills you think of people needing help you think of charity you think of white savior don't you that sort of thing you know completely and i'm namibian i don't need charity i mean yes i'm a white namibian who comes from a 
fortunate family and everything, but Namibia and Africa as a whole, we don't need more charities. What we need is business. Like, do you want to send a kid to school for free and help the kid go to school? Or do you want to give the kid's parents a job and the parents are proud and have an income and the parents can send their own kids to school? I mean, what would you rather have? To me, it's absolutely a no-brainer. Like, you want to improve the living conditions of the entire community. And if there's an opportunity to do that, then why would you ever do charities? Uh, And so, like I said, Africa does not need more charity. Africa needs more business. And we are building beautiful, top-class desirable steel bicycles that I want to ride and I want people in London and Portland and Amsterdam and Tokyo to want to ride like high value beautiful bicycles that are just anyone would want I mean a Speedwagen, a Mosaic, a Saffron, you know, they they come from London and Portland and Boulder and no one asks a question about is this a project or is this a charity? You know, it's a business. And now I'm starting a business in Namibia and it's a business and I want everyone who's involved in the business to make money because that's what businesses do and I want the money to make lives better because that's what businesses do. And so we are building beautiful, desirable bikes. The difference is we're doing it in a place that people don't expect it to happen, but that doesn't change anything about our quality and our standards and how much effort has gone into getting the best and the most beautiful bicycles out of it and we i mean we you know there's so much that goes with that uh we've already sent one bicycle to iso testing um we've updated a few things on how we do things and uh we we want to use more silver brazing than brass brazing and the whole thought about that is you just lower the temperatures and go into more specifics and details about that but we are now about to send our second frame to ISO testing because, you know, you need to know that what you're doing is actually good. I mean, it's very easy to to braise two tubes together and you take a hammer out and you hit those things and they do not come apart. We, very easy to know that the work is going to hold. But, like, what does that mean exactly? Like, And that's why we're sending it to ISO testing so that we actually – we can show people like on a certificate, like this is what it means. This is, you put it in this stand and it gets shaken this way a hundred thousand times. And then you gets this happens and like it lasts, you know, and we need to also like, we actually have just sent a bicycle to London um, yesterday. Uh, we are sending, this bike is going, I, believe it is called the cycle show yeah that's right yeah 
in Alexander Palace where we met. That's, it, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> where, where the panda might still be running around. Um, <laughs> the cycle show is next weekend, which I believe is the 22nd of April. And the there is some uh, a competition there where I believe 12 bikes will be on show. And if I understood it correctly, the public at the show can vote for their favorite bike. And, you know, whoever wins the vote wins the prize. And Shram and Zip got an invite and they selected us as... Well, I don't believe I've even said the name of our bicycles. You haven't. Now I keep trying to tease it out of you. <laughs> we, yeah, we, so much to talk about. Um, Onguza, uh, which I'll, I'll come, I'll circle around to what that means. But Onguza Bicycles, Shram and Zip have been this amazing partner. Funnily enough, my main contact at Shram and Zip, I met at that cyclocross race. Wow. back in 2014. So that shows you once again, like how long that relationship has been growing and building. And the first time they they physically helped me, Shram, was in 2016 already. And then 2017, they got involved. And like, they've basically been, since I've been doing things, they've, they've been involved. So like they, them together with Columbus in terms of products have been my most important allies. And there's just, you know, products that like I've chosen them because they are the brands I want to work with, but they have fortunately also chosen me and shall I say Onguza as a brand they want to work with. So Shram and Zip received an invite to send a bicycle to this show and they chose Onguza, which I mean, it kind of just melts my heart that they thought that we were worthy of this. But on the other hand, yes, we are worthy of this. Like we have put in so much work and our bicycles are good and our story is good. And we've made a beautiful gravel bike, which is definitely a showstopper. Yeah. And it's going to be on show at Ali Pali at the jaw droppers competition. And I hope, I hope any of your listeners can go and vote for us. And but go and, and see the bike and appreciate it for what it is, because it's so much work and effort has gone into that to get to where we are today. And there's so much work that lies ahead. And anyone who can't make that show, hopefully, you know, there's there's so many more shows we want to go to. There's oh, there's bespoke. so many, yeah. Bespoke, yeah, yeah. In October, really we definitely are going to be there uh, just to be able to show people hands-on what we are doing because most of our sales is going to be online. Just the fact that we're sitting in Namibia and our target clients are international. I mean, the reason the reason for that is it's not that I'm not going to sell to Namibians or South Africans, but... I want to show the world also what amazing products we can make. And the only way to do that is, well, to sell them internationally to like, so that is the, the main drive is to send them away, not keep them locally, bring in the euros, bring in the dollars, bring in the yen into the Namibian economy and show the world that Namibia can make something really beautiful and Africa can make something beautiful. And in my own tiny little corner in the world, sort of try to nudge that 
that balance of what people think of when they think of Africa and they immediately start thinking charities and giving. And it's like, no, 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 no. We have amazing people with amazing culture and character and humor and skills, and we can do amazing things. Well, I wanted to ask you, but obviously you, you make these bikes in Namibia and you know, no matter where a bike comes from, it's normally got a little bit of influence of that place that it comes from. And that, now with your bikes, is that influence, is it, is it simply, do we see it simply in the name on Guza, which oh, I'd love you to explain what it means, but is there, is there any other sort of detailing in the bike that sort of says, hey, we're from here, whether it's a paint job or a component or just, a, or just any sort of bit of detailing in there? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's start off with the, the gaping hole so far, Onguza. Um, yeah. Which, if one wants to do the full thing, you would say Okuti Onguza. Uh, the, the, so, Onguza is spelled O N G U Z A. And if it is a Herero and Ovahimba word, which is a local language, two different, two linked but separate local languages. And Okuti Onguza means the vast expanse uh, or the desert. So generally you think of it, no one lives in the desert or tries not to live in the desert, shall I say. But so when you're talking about the desert, you tend not to be in it. So it's the desert yonder, it's the desert over there, it's sort of the displacement Um so we found that term and we absolutely loved it. It's also a slightly old lang- um, old word in those languages, so it's not super common. And it just felt right for a Namibian brand for us, for the area we're in in Namibia. We're on the edge of the desert. People speak those languages where we come from. And... I absolutely love it. And also it's it's spelt the way you pronounce it, even though in Herero, the people, they, the Z at the end, they say Onguza, but we are not we are not doing that. We're simply saying Onguza as, as one. Just a little bit Spanish, that wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does have a little bit of a Spanish sound to it. So that's that's the name. Our bikes are in a certain way, very representative of where we come from. That's why our first bikes that we're selling are gravel bikes, because in Namibia, a lot of people in the Namibian cycling scene ride on gravel on mountain bikes, you know, but they're full suspension because of the corrugations in the roads. Mm -hmm. But if you want to cycle from Cairo to Cape Town through Africa, you would rather have a gravel bike than a full suspension mountain bike. Just the amount of stuff that can go wrong. And you would much rather have a steel gravel bike than a carbon one. Just the chances of anything going wrong are just reduced, reduced, reduced. And so there's a certain uh, simplicity to it. Now, simplicity also comes with sounds like cheaper and that is not what i'm implying well, I th- when i say simplicity i think of elegance and yes. of, you know beauty you know exactly. i mean i mean i ride a you know i ride a fixed gear yeah. but a single 
but you know, it's not the it's the simplicity, but like I say, the simplicity is the beauty, it's the elegance in exactly. it, exactly you know, the purity. Yes, exactly. So that is what we're going for. Something that is absolutely rough and robust. And if you want to cycle across Africa, it's sort of an ideal build for that. But it's it you can ride wherever, and it's always going to look elegant and beautiful and your children could inherit it from you one day or you know you could repaint it and it'll be like a new bike next year and obviously you can do that with carbon bikes and other things but mm, the carbon sort of you don't really yeah. do it the way you do with a steel bike no, not at all and so we are starting off with gravel bikes that's our main stay shall i say and that is also what the show bike is that's going to the cycle show but we've already built a 29er mountain bike, hardtail, built several road bikes. In fact, I was actually going to race an Onguda road bike at the Tokyo Olympics last year until I got COVID 24 hours before flying out to Tokyo. And that bike is completely different once again because it's you can't go to the Olympics with just a farm gate you you have to go on a competitive bike so my plan was what is the best bicycle we can build in our workshop and it has aerodynamic 3d printed stainless steel headset head tube lugs bottom bracket dropouts uh, it's got a carbon fiber integrated seat post and steel tubing I want one. I want one, I want one now. <laughs> and it's got a integrated handlebar and fork that are 3D printed titanium. This bike is, it's the bee's knees. And that sounds well, like my dream build, actually, because I've been kind of, I've, I have been talking to a few frame builders about what I want. And, I, and I've not pressed go on this project yet, but, you know, it was, it was always that sort of, you know, beautiful steel frame didn't you but then with a really modern front end that really sort of futuristic cockpit yes. which sounds like what you're describing really yes exactly uh i i hope everyone wants one but not everyone will want to pay for one those are going to yeah the, the amount <laughs> of work and tech that went into those bikes and i mean i had two aeronautics engineers helping me out um, josh portner from silka the amazing brand in America. He was involved on the project. Like Columbus was involved on the project. Tom Sturdy of Sturdy Cycles. He was heavily involved in the project. In fact, the, the handlebar and the fork are, are basically sturdy off the shelf. Um, the rest of the parts were made specifically for me, but you can still see the sturdy hand in them. Um, I say for me, for Nguza. But this bike really, really blows me away. And it, it will also blow the bank away. Um, you know, we're talking significantly over £10,000 yeah. for a full-built bicycle. But it's a special world-class. It was supposed to race at the Olympics. Like, it's it's worthy of that. And that's the kind of bicycle we we can build. And we can show the world that we can build amazing things that are are different because... It was a bicycle that it was the best possible bicycle we could build in our workshop. You know, it's built in our workshop in Namibia. It's not 
it's not put together there. It's built there. You know, there's a very significant yeah. difference. Um, like the workmanship that went into that bike. So, so there's that bike. Um, and I, like I said, but there's also, shall I say, normal, we've built some normal steel road bikes and we can, we can beauty with steel. You can build whatever you want to in certain ways. And, we haven't built a, a full suspension mountain bike yet, but that's, I mean, it's a matter of time. <laughs> you sort of relish, relish the challenge of oh, whatever, whatever comes in. I, I, and it's, in terms of the building, actually, you know, you've spoken about we. Um, are, are your hands on these frames when they're being built or are there some other sort of great frame builders that we should be paying tribute to? Uh, a mix. And now that I'm, I'm moving back to Namibia, my hands are going to be on the bikes more than they were. But we have two local gentlemen, Zacharias Nkolo and Petros Mufenge, who are part owners in Onguza. These gentlemen just have always had amazing skills with their hands. And you just have to, we've given them a product that is worthy of the, natu- the skills that they already had. And they are absolutely relishing it and and showing that the initial idea I had has has feet. So at the moment, uh, there are two guys in the workshop. They're in the workshop in Namibia right now. I will be joining them very soon. Um, They will continue to do most of the work, but I will be, you know, because answering all the emails and ordering things and talking to customers, it takes up a lot of time. But I will, I will, I'm also hands-on in the workshop and we are hoping to, depending on how orders go and how everything goes, the plan is to very slowly but surely, you know, grow that. But training takes its time. It all needs to be top-class work. Uh, You can't just add people very quickly. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thank you, as ever, to Science in Sport for their continued support of everything that we do here at the Cycling Podcast. We've talked a lot over the last few weeks about Richard Moore and how much we'll miss him and the things that will remind us all of, of Rich. And I think. For all of us, if we go to a bike race, we'll be reminded of Rich. If we watch a bike race on the TV, we'll be reminded of Rich. If we just listen to a podcast, we'll be reminded of Rich, particularly this podcast. But I think I'll also be reminded of Rich every time I mention the Science in Sport offer code. Uh, That's because Rich was pretty much the only person in the cycling podcast family who didn't get that offer code wrong. Uh, Daniel and I and Lionel have been terrible at it in the past, uh, Daniel and I particularly. Um, but if you want to get 25% off your next Science in Sport order, and why wouldn't you, obviously, um, just go to scienceinsport.com and enter the offer code SISCP25. That's SIS. CP25. Well, Tom, I think that Dan Craven was actually 
the first professional rider that I sort of knew by name and followed because he was he was made famous with GCN fame. Of course, um, yeah. And the the brilliant that was grotty. <laughs> saying I hope I did you justice there Dan um, that was very accurate he, that was really good Lizzie another string you to your much. bow well done and uh, he was he was just such a character that I was really drawn into um, yeah drawn into the characters of professional cycling and he was one of the one of the characters as he was as you said he, as he was riding for Europe Cup back then um, who drew me in it's funny isn't it, with um, we, we're talking a little bit I've you know, been sort of reflecting on with, with Richard passing, I don't want to bring it back to, to, to that again, but, you know, with Richard passing away, we've sort of talked about um, the way he championed women's cycling. And you, I kind of see women's cycling as the way it's perceived now is kind of caught up with Richard's view. And it's Dan's, Dan's similar, you know, the stuff he was doing about African cycling. I feel like the sport has sort of finally caught up. a little, Well, not quite caught up, but, you know, it's almost... It's almost there, at the you know. It's almost realised exactly what he was trying to tell us all along. You know what I mean? That there's talent out here, and you know we need to recognise it and expand yeah. the sport. You know. <laughs> well, I guess that's the motto. If you if you believe in something, then uh, keep pushing it, and eventually, mm. <laughs> eventually it'll get there. But no, it's amazing to hear about how things are changing in in African cycling, and of course, we've got the World Championships in Rwanda in 2024, which many have. Sorry to interrupt there, but this is a corrections corner. The World Championships in Rwanda are, in fact, in 2025. So sorry to disappoint you there, but an extra year to wait for the first African UCI World Championships. And I'm just putting it out there, by the way, but I would love to go. Many have slated, really, for various reasons. I mean, there's a whole kind of another series of podcasts on that alone. But hearing Dan speak about about African cycling and about how it's changed, you know, in the last, well, 10 years, um, really made me think, well, it, it made me change my opinion about the Rwandan World Championships, actually. Um, you know, previously I'd kind of thought, is this a good idea? And, you know, what are the reasons behind this? And, yeah, obviously we don't know the reasons behind it, but but actually listening to, to Dan speak made me think, you know, well, you have to start somewhere and you have to create that inspiration somehow and what effect might that have in another 10 years down the line you know who who are we going to see at the 2035 world championships um so it'll be it'll be really interesting it'll be really really interesting well is it i mean you you mentioned that i mean i i thought that a women's paris roubaix was a rubbish idea not really. Not really. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> but but should... to fire you from the podcast, Dom. <laughs> um, but we should talk. We should talk about um, about Roubaix. You know, it was, it was great to hear you uh, on the podcast uh, following Paris Roubaix Femme. Um, you know, analyzing oh, well, analyzing the race and, it was what, a and what a race it was. Race. Yeah, what it a was, race. It was just brilliant. I mean, the thing about the men's and the women's races is. The men's race is so long, and so um, I actually repl- was talking to you on Twitter about this, Tom. <laughs> um, that oh, you can, you can I remember that. <laughs> I haven't actually watched the men's race all the way through before, and my excitement for the women's race has has drawn me into the men's race this year. But the thing about the men's race is it's so long 
that watching the whole thing is really exhausting, like six and a half hours of coverage. And the men's race was really kind of front loaded with mm. excitement and it almost burnt itself out. Mm. Um, almost by the end, you know, everything had happened that I was exhausted, the riders were exhausted, the commentators were exhausted. Um, and because the women's race was that much shorter, it was just so jam-packed. It was so intensely packed with action. And I, I'd say there was only kind of, yeah, the last nine kilometres, really, where not that much happened um, because by that point we saw that the race was set. But, um, yeah, I guess we should talk a bit more about the technical side, but I'm just raving about how brilliant the women's race was. No, <laughs> encouraging is... you to go and listen back to Harry Bay again. <laughs> just listen to it again. I'm sure you've well, listened it was, already. It was absolutely fabulous. But uh, tech-wise, I mean... Obviously, the the interesting tech stuff was kind of happening towards the back of the race. With what sort of th- what things that caught my eye were the uh, Jumbo Visma's miraculous folding wheels, which uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Would you call it a taco? Would you call it a pitta? A folded flatbread? I guess it depends <laughs> where you are in the world. I would but- call it a calzone. I think. A calzone, oh, yeah. of course. Yeah. And if you didn't see this, there were two in- incidents. One with um, Wout van Aert in the Trouet de Arnberg. My French is not very good, so apologies. It's pretty good, though. Um, and one with Christophe Laporte. Was it maybe on Monson Pavel? I'm not sure. Um, where both of them had Shimano wheels that um, catastrophically folded in half. And I have to say, I was absolutely amazed with both of them they they their wheels folded in half which is not something you expect to happen and they kind of thankfully it was the back wheel for both of them they kind of skidded along a little bit and then jumped off and Wout van Aert thankfully had uh, Timo Rusen behind him Dutch national champion whose bike he was able to jump on Christophe Laporte was left to sort of in the very Paris-Roubaix way go Ah, oh, my, oh, my wheels just <laughs> folded in half. I just got to run with just my bike. Just casually now. run down some cobbles, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's funny, I guess Parry Bay is the only way, way, only race where you don't really bat an eyelid if your wheel folds in half. But it was quite a catastrophic failure. And a lot of people have been saying, well, you know, the effect of riding on a cobble a cobble like one finds in the north of France with a puncture does disastrous things to the wheels. But having said that, there were a lot of people riding on flats um, on the cobbles and it was only those wheels that we saw dramatically folding in half. So um, they were actually the 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 last year's edition wheels. They were the 11-speed uh, Shimano wheels, not the new 12-speed ones. So it would be really interesting to see. I mean, I'm sure Shimano will want to keep it as quiet as possible, but um, there's obviously a bad batch there. It's happened um, before. I mean, it takes me back to, um, I think it was the Welter. The TTT at Tirreno Adric. Yeah, that was what it was. It was the Tirreno, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, with Kwiatkowski, I remember his front wheel just completely folded. It was his front tri-spoke. It collapsed and there were other faults in some of the other riders. And he was on the front of the TTT and it just catastrophically took out the whole team but uh thankfully none of the riders were hurt in that instant which is brilliant but i mean we saw um ellen van dyke actually she was riding uh with a flat for i think she was about two kilometers on the cobbles uh, a front flat as well so she did remarkably well to to hold it upright and so i mean a lot of the riders will have had tubeless and have had tire inserts in as we were talking about about yeah, two yeah. episodes ago let's go back and yeah, listen to that yeah. which will have made a difference but um 
it's quite interesting. And I, another of the the kind of newer pieces of tech that's come into Paris-Roubaix this year, which I've noticed, um, I kind of spotted it on social media, actually. It was a post by SRAM. Uh, there was a, a SRAM mechanic from the US who'd come over who was measuring something in the headset. And I sent this to uh, Tom. Yeah, and I said, you did. What yeah, yeah. earth is that? And so I asked, I asked Elise Chabé, and it's... It's a, it's a small suspension in in the headset, which is becoming more and more common and is a really sensible place to put a small suspension because often you've put kind of these iso-speed decouplers or different things in the seat stays, but it's the hands, the rider's hands that get absolutely ruined. Um, and I know Canyon have done it. I think there's a few other manufacturers who've done it as well. Um, just putting these little bits of suspension in there. And Elise said that, um, she doesn't. She doesn't really know what it is, but it's made a big difference to the way she feels and the way she floats across the cobbles and um, the feeling in her hands. So, yeah, a little bit of tech coming into Parry Bay, which could could be helpful, you know, in gravel and in maybe even in maybe even in rough roads and places like Sheffield, where um, the road surfaces are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I did, I did, we did talk. You did talk briefly there about punctures. I mean, it's funny because I. You know, the the from the men's race particularly, the sort of the impression of the commentary team was that we were having an extraordinary amount of punctures in this race, a lot more than usual. Now mm. that can sometimes be a sort of an emotional reaction or a distinctive reaction. You know, mm. when you haven't really done the data analysis. But I mean, from you, from your side of things, speaking to riders, were there more punctures? Is there an issue with tubeless? I don't think there's an issue with tubeless. Um, I think that you know. Over 365 days of... Well, actually, I say that was only six months since the last Paris-Roubaix. Um, you, you look at something with rose-tinted glasses and yeah. you've seen, you see races where you have a normal amount of punctures and then you go to Paris-Roubaix and you have a lot of punctures, as you might expect. But this race, the men's race, was the fastest ever recorded. Of course, there's only been two women's races, so it's not really <laughs> fair to make a judgment. Um, but... The faster that you're going, if you hit a pothole at a really high speed, and essentially Parry Bay is just hundreds of thousands of yeah. little potholes or, you know, sharp, sharp edges that you hit with hard with the front of your tyre where you just go bang. Um, and the faster you hit it, the more likely you are to have a flat. And I think that it's difficult to compare data um, but blaming it all on tubeless is probably not fair. I mean, I know my team wasn't was actually running tubulars um, right. at Pyro Bay. Okay. Um, yeah, they felt that with the low pressure that you run and the high chance of riding on a flat for a very long time, um, because of the cars being way back and you know the length of the sectors, that. For safety reasons, it was it, it was safer to go with a tubular that was glued um, than even with a tubeless tire with an insert, which is so unlikely to come off. But a tub- tubular tire is even less likely. So it's interesting. It's interesting, but I I think the conditions were so good. The riders are saying that it was the best conditions you could possibly imagine, which meant it was so fast that I think that's probably got more to do with it than mm. anything else. I thought, um, talking of your team, I thought Tanya looked really good. Tanya Erath, yeah, she was out in the uh, early break for 60 kilometres or so, uh, leading leading the race, um, which is brilliant. Um, yeah, she looked she looked 
exceptional and she was the last of the escapees to cling on so yeah, it was yeah. Good. and obviously a previous guest on this show as well so you know yeah. a, few, a few episodes back talking about riding fixed gear she comes from a, a sort of fixed gear criterium scene which is so maybe i'll be I'll, maybe i'll make it into roubaix eventually <laughs> with my fixed gear maybe skills. i'll make it into roubaix eventually well I, lizzie I'm, i really i know I, I yeah i'm desperate for you to to ride roubaix. i think you'll go great in roubaix when you get to ride it i i really do well i hope so next year tom bring you back a couple Next year, next maybe they'll do one every six months. It seems to work. <laughs> well, I was it? thinking that when uh, when the UCI said that they were thinking about rescheduling it to October. Well, I thought let's reschedule it to October now. Uh, now that we've just had it, and then when we get to October, let's reschedule it to April again. Yeah, I think maybe we have maybe we have two a year, and then you know we have a wet one and a dry one. You know, and you can be the sort the of appetite the appetite is there. Yeah, you can be the wet. And we don't even really officially schedule it. We just say it's going to be around this time in October, and we wait until it <laughs> rains, and then we say, okay, that's the day. That's, actually, it's, it's funny because one of one of the I, there's a few cycling events that I want to check off my list and one of the ones I wanted to do was the it is like that you never know when it's going to happen it just happens when the weather's right but that's the headwind world championships which oh, I'm desperate in, to in do Holland, yeah, of course, yeah. which day. of course you have to do on an upright town bike and I yeah. think there's actually a measure of how upright your bike is <laughs> in order to uh, ride it and you have to ride in um, casual clothes yeah. jeans or something yeah. and in flat shoes it's absolutely brilliant but listen, you can only do it when there's a howling hooli when there's a hooli well listen well for an episode of service course i am gonna do that one day so so <laughs> just, you. just, you'll basically what you'll have to you'll have to do is you'll have to come to my house and take over all my duties so i can go basically that's <laughs> that's what you'll need to do um, lizzie um listen it's been great it's been lovely to chat to you and about rich particularly and about bike racing again even if you don't remember meeting me for the very first time in harrogate which, <laughs> you know, um, i've got photographic evidence that you weren't shot. there tom i remember because you'd come you'd, you're in your gb tracksuit you'd come over you'd just done a some kind of ride or something i don't know um <laughs> pre- and i think it was a friday feel like it was a friday it was a friday there you go you it see. was the day before the race there you go you see yeah yeah, and I think someone there was a big name rider in there at the time. Maybe Marianne Voss was in there at the same time. We were looking. At, she was no Annemiek van Vluten. Annemiek van, van Vluten, Vluten was in there. there. You see, there you go. <laughs> Maybe you were there. So, sorry about that, Tom. It's easy to miss me when you're surrounded by Richard Moore and Annemiek van Vluten. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd miss, I'd miss me. Uh, listen, Lizzie. We'll have to ask Paul Watson if he's got photographic evidence of you being there. Yep. Yeah, um, I had scrambled eggs as well. Listen, I'm telling you too much. I was there. Look, I've made my case. Um, Actually, now now you say that, Tom, that's coming back to me. <laughs> you remember the eggs. Because I wasn't sure what to have, so I think I had a scone and you had scrambled eggs. Now, on that note... <laughs> Lizzie, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank, Thank you, Tom. See you later. Thank you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.